Would you please join me in Romans chapter 8? The 8th chapter of Romans, as we dig into God's Word this evening. To really get the gist of what we're studying in Romans chapter 8, we need to have at least a basic understanding of Romans 8 up to this point, uh, of the, the entire letter up to this point. And one writer presents a basic outline of the book of Romans that I find very helpful and it's very good. Following the introduction, Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20 discusses the need for God's righteousness. As you study through those passages, what we learn is that man is depraved. We have a fallen nature and it leaves us guilty before God. Then beginning in Romans 3.21 and continuing through chapter 5, Paul presents the imputation of God's righteousness. We need God's righteousness because of our fallen nature. We're guilty and God provides it through his son, Jesus Christ. He gives us justification through his son and it's made available to every person through faith. And then Romans 6 through 8 goes into detail about what this looks like. The impartation of God's righteousness is revealed. And as you study these chapters, Romans 6 speaks about how the impartation of God's righteousness affects our relationship with sin. Chapter 7, how it affects our relationship with the law. Chapter 8, how it affects our relationship with and before God himself. And what we learn in chapter 6 is that God's righteousness provides power over sin. In Romans chapter 7, it provides us a plea before the law. And in chapter 8, it provides a position before God. In Romans 9 through 11... We have the vindication of God's righteousness. And that portion of Romans can be a little difficult to understand. Many think Romans 9 through 11 is likely the hardest groupings of chapters in the New Testament to come to an understanding of. One thing that will help you if you sit down to read through Romans 9 through 11, study it out, is to understand that those chapters are addressed explicitly to Israel. Those chapters are for the nation of Israel. And then Romans 12, 1 through 15, 13 explains the practice of God's righteousness. Paul shows what it looks like to live out practically what God has produced positionally. Positionally, God has placed us in Christ and given us his righteousness Practically speaking, we still make wrong choices. We still do wrong, but we can do right. By God's help, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, we can choose to do what's right. And Paul explains what that looks like. But our passage here at the end of Romans 8, 
right near the middle of the letter, in this chapter where Paul describes the impartation of God's righteousness and how it affects our relationship with him and our position before him, sits this passage. Thomas Constable called this passage our eternal security. And it declares unequivocally that we cannot now or ever be separated from God's love. No separation demonstrates the passage's theme and the message's title for tonight. We're in a series called Love Like Jesus. We spoke about how we're going to look at passages that define, detail, and demonstrate God's love and what it looks like for us to apply it to our lives. Because we know that God loves us, We also know that God wants us to love him and to love others the way that he loves us. Well, how do we do that better? How can we grow in that more by understanding better his love for us? And Paul gives us one of the mountaintop passages on the love of God here in Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. Let's read what God's word says. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Through this point in Romans Paul has demonstrated the greatness of man's depravity, but also the greatness of God's salvation. And now just plainly declares to us, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, what does that mean for you today? Nothing can separate you from God's love if you are in Christ. Cling to the reality of his love for you. We'll look in this message at how Paul defines nothing. But you should immediately recognize that you are secure in God's love. You're secure there. And then for the one here listening or watching online, maybe you're not in Christ. Believe In him as your savior to experience the full benefits of God's love for you. Now you might ask me, pastor, if if I'm not in Christ, does that mean that God doesn't love me? 
Yes, he does love you. He loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son to die in your place. However, you cannot know love as one of his children. And think about this. You certainly can't know God's love in eternity without being in Christ. Paul opens very quickly. And that's why I spend time here for this moment in verse 31 by saying this. If God be for us. If places a condition, doesn't it? And we might sit here and ask, well, what's the condition? Pastor, didn't you say we're secure in God's love? Yes, if you're in Christ. Because that's the condition. You have to be reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ, to be secure in his love. You must be his through faith in Christ. I want you to think about this for a moment. There are so many things the Bible reveals to us about the eternal destiny of one who is not in Christ. The eternal destiny for one who is not in Christ is in a place called hell, later the lake of fire. The Bible speaks to us about the torments that are there, about what those who are there experience. But can I tell you tonight, I believe the worst part of hell or the lake of fire for all eternity is separation from God's love. In hell, the lake of fire, those who are there will have but a memory of God's love. But no experience of it. And so if you don't know Christ, this message will be primarily for believers. But if you don't know Christ, trust Christ. Experience forgiveness of sin and salvation. Call out to him believing he died for your sin and rose again by his power. And he'll save you. But to you who are children of God and followers of Christ... What can we know because of God's love? As we study Romans 8, 31 through 39, let the message of no separation from God's love encourage you, though you face adversaries, accusations, afflictions, and anything else. Number one, would you notice God's love for you does not change despite adversaries. Some people seem to just be born to be contentious. Do you know anyone like that? Anyone who just at any given moment, every given moment, seems to want nothing more than to be contentious about something. Be argumentative, be disagreeable. Have you ever interacted with someone? No matter what you say, they disagree. No matter what you do, it's not the right thing. You've done something wrong. Well, think about it. That's exactly what our adversary does. He's a liar and a deceiver. Always trying to convince you that you don't make the cut. Paul says here, if God be for us, who can be against us? 
He reminds us of that experience of adversity that comes from our adversary. When you are a child of God and follower of Jesus, understand tonight, there will always be people who are against you. Adversaries produce adversity. And as a child of God and follower of Jesus, you will encounter adversaries and experience the hardship they make. And sometimes... Those experiences leave us wondering, does God love me? I want you to understand when you go through adversity that comes from adversaries, specifically the great adversary, the devil, you will come to that point in time in your life at different times where you will question like that because the devil puts his lies into your mind. He, he tries to get you to believe untruths. He'll make you think things like, God doesn't love me because he can't love me. You may hear voices that say, God can't love you. But understand tonight, though you may hear voices that say God can't love you, what you will never hear is God's voice saying, I don't love you. You'll never hear that. Oh, you may think God can't love me. God doesn't love me. But you'll never hear God say, I don't love you. Never. How can I know that? Paul gives the answer. He gave you Jesus. Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And then verse 32 is the answer to that question. He that spared not his own son. When you begin to think, I I have all these adversaries. I'm enduring the adversity placed on me by my great adversary, the devil. He's whispering his lies to me. God doesn't love you. God can't love you. You know what you've done. You know what you are. God can't love you. You're going through all these terrible things. God can't love you. He's placing those things in your mind. And Paul says, wait a minute. Take a step back and remember God gave you Jesus. He uses this terminology, he that spared not his own son. That word spared in the text means to be chary of. That that word has the idea of to be uh, reluctant or hesitant, to abstain or to treat leniently. The, The Paul is giving us the idea here that God was not hesitant or reluctant to give his son so that we could be delivered from our sin. So think of that for for a moment. When you think about God's love and what it means to love like Jesus, remember this, God gave you his very best. God thought enough of you. He loved you enough to give his best. And he didn't hesitate. He wasn't reluctant to do that. 
It wasn't as if God was up in heaven considering what would need to be done for us to be delivered from our sin and have to, to think about and mull over and kind of ponder and rethink and, and reconsider whether or not he would give us a son. It wasn't like you and I can be at times where we're very reluctant to take a step We hesitate before jumping in. God did not hesitate. He wasn't reluctant at all. He loved us so much. He thought enough of us that giving his best was not even worthy of a second thought. If God would do that, then what Paul goes on to say is there is nothing he would withhold from us. He would never withdraw what he's already given. Freely give is another phrase he uses there. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Freely give comes from the Greek word charizomai, whose root word is charis, the main word translated grace. And so here again, Paul reminds us of the grace of God. It reminds us of God's grace through which he always interacts with us. You need to understand at every moment of your lives, you are receiving grace from God. There is not a moment that you live that you are not receiving God's grace. Every moment he's giving you grace. Whatever adversaries And especially the adversary used to convince you that God does not and cannot love you. That does not separate you from God's love. And remember, we are defining his love so we can better demonstrate his love. And what Paul tells us here is he didn't spare Jesus. He was not hesitant to give his best for us. So let me ask you tonight, if we're to love like Jesus, God loved us so much he didn't hesitate to give us our best, his best. I wonder, do you ever hesitate to give him your best? Are there times where you're reluctant to give God the very best that you have, the very best of yourself? He did not hesitate to do that for us. We should not hesitate to do that for him. And by the way, let's continue. It's to not hesitate to give your best, not just to God, but what about for others? We're to love like Jesus. We're to love him and love others the way he has loved us. How has he loved us? He gave us our very best. So how should we love others? By giving our very best. Can I remind you, you were the adversary of God before coming to Christ. He still gave you his best. He gave himself for you to love like him is to do that for others, including your adversaries. God's love for you does not change despite adversaries. Number two, God's love for you does not change despite accusations. 
Look at verse number 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Shall lay anything to the charge is all one word in the Greek language, and it means to call in. Like if you have a debt and your debt is being called in. What does that mean? It's time to show up and pay not just a payment. It's time to show up and pay off the entire thing. It also means to bring to account. It's a legal term. It's an accusation of a crime. Can I remind you that the Bible identifies Satan as the accuser of believers? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. What is Satan busy doing? He's a busy creature, isn't he? He's as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. The Apostle John writes there in Revelation, he's accusing the believers day and night before God. He's tireless. He's always on the prowl. He's always prosecuting God's children. And here's what you need to understand. As an adversary, Satan speaks to you. He is a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. When he is acting as an adversary, he is speaking to you and he is speaking lies. God can't love you. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want you. God doesn't doesn't desire to have you. God doesn't want a relationship with you. God's not for you. He lies to you over and over constantly. But understand this, when as the accuser, he goes before God, he speaks the truth. When he goes before God and says, hey, God, withdraw your love from that creature. Didn't you see how he lied to his employer? Didn't you see, don't you know that sensual lust that he is struggling with? Don't you see how she's gossiping about that other church member down there? Don't, don't you see how he's grumbling and complaining about everything? As your adversary, he lies to you. As the accuser, he speaks the truth to God. Trying to convince God to remove and withdraw his love. Trying to convince God to withdraw his hand from you. Satan will remind you of what you've done, truthfully, but then he will try to convince you of a lie. But when he speaks to God, he tells God the truth of what you've done to seek to move God to withdraw his love from you. But though Satan speaks the truth to God to move him to do this, what Paul tells us here is he can't succeed. He'll speak the truth to God about you all day long, about how you failed, how you've messed up, 
How you've left something undone that you ought to have done and how you did something that you ought not to have. His accusations as accurate and as severe and as plenteous as they may be will not force God to withdraw his love from you. How do I know that? Paul gives us three reasons in his answer. First, God chose to set his love on you. He chose you. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's what? Elect. Now don't get all scared. Okay? It's a Bible word without a Calvinistic meaning. If you don't agree with that, sorry, not sorry. When God speaks to us about predestination, about elect, any of those things, it is what he has chosen for those who believe. Ephesians chapter 1, others make this very clear. He chose to give his forgiveness to those who would believe, chose to redeem those who would believe, chose to adopt those who would believe, chose to make them holy who would believe. And that's true over and over and over again. As God's child, he desires to have you. He wants you. He's chosen to set his love on you eternally and unconditionally. Secondly, God is the justifier. He, he says, it is God that justifieth. Now, why does he say that here? The accuser of the brethren is accusing you before God speaking the truth. But what does justification mean? Declared righteous. As Satan speaks to God about everything that you have failed at. The judge that he is pleading to is the same one who has already passed judgment. And if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, he's already declared you righteous. So no accusation is going to stick. And then thirdly, he will not reassess and, and declare you guilty because... The crucified and risen Jesus is the advocate. Paul says, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Put it in the context. Yes, Jesus prays for us. We've, we've said that many times, but put it directly within the context of Romans chapter 8. Why is Jesus there making intercession for us? Because Satan is there too, day and night, accusing us, speaking the truth of what we've done before God. It's as John said in 1 John chapter 2, if any man sin, we have an advocate with God, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Just like Satan is there day and night trying to accuse and get God to withdraw his love from you. Jesus Christ is there interceding on your behalf, acting as the advocate, pleading your case, not submitting your goodness as evidence, not submitting a, a, a denial of your badness, but submitting his own righteousness and blood. 
When Jesus speaks back against the accuser, he pleads his substitutionary death and justifying resurrection before the Father. The accusation Satan can truthfully level against you will not separate you from God's love, no matter how severe the accusations are. You can't be separated from God's love. In our adult Bible study Wednesday night, someone read the second verse of the song before the throne of God above, and it came to mind as I was finishing my preparations. Listen to all three verses of the song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased with his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. No matter what the adversary whispers to you that's a lie, and no matter what he shouts as an accuser before God that is truth, he cannot cause God to withdraw his love from you. Number three, God's love for you does not change despite affliction. Paul goes on in verse 35 and he says again, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he starts to mention not whose, but what's. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. All of these things are things we experience in life. And they are things that can leave us feeling like God has failed. He's withdrawn his love, or at least he's very distant. But how can we know that God's love does not change despite these afflictions? Paul uses an emphatic word when he says separate, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. It means to place room between. It identifies the idea that nothing can come between you and Jesus. How many of you know the hymn by the title, Nothing Between? Nothing between my soul and the Savior. Stephanie and I, over the years, have used that hymn title as a motif for our relationship. Nothing between. There are times we use it in jest. Michael has a habit of 
anytime he sees Stephanie and I embrace of coming and trying to squeeze between us. And if it's not Michael, it's the dog. You think I'm joking. If, if we're in the house and we just embrace or whatever, there is always someone trying to get between us. It might, be, it might be one of the kids trying to get between us. It might be the dog jumping up on us and pawing, you know, while we're hugging each other or whatever. It's even been Addie a little recently. We've played this little game with her where Steph and I have given each other a little kiss and Addie looks at us and makes these funny faces And one time I was holding her as we were doing this. And every time I would lean in and get a kiss and come back, she'd smack me on the head. Like, stop it. What's wrong with you? We've always had this nothing between motif. Have you ever thought about how in human relationships, often things come between people? The closest human relationships even can be stretched or severed because of affliction. Life's challenges and difficulties that drive a wedge between people. But listen to Paul's statement again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he mentions not people, but problems. And what we're left with is the reality that neither people nor problems can come between Jesus and you. He is so close. He is so near. You may not feel the closeness. You may not feel the nearness at times. But from his side, he is so close. He is so near. He has you embraced so tightly that nothing can get between you and him. That may happen in human relationships, but it will never happen in your Jesus relationship. How do we know? Paul goes on. In verses 36 and 37, he appeals to God's word. He says, as it's written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But then he says in verse 37, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He appeals to the word of God and proclaims that through all these, whether it's people or problems that try to drive a wedge between us and God, who try to get God to withdraw his love from us, to separate himself from us, nothing, neither people nor problems, not even death, can get between you and his love for you. In everything, he's made you more than a conqueror. And then fourthly, would you notice this? God's love for you does not change despite adversaries, accusations, afflictions. God's love for you does not change despite anything else. How does Paul define nothing? Let's wrap it up. If you've thought of something that could be more severe than what Paul has already mentioned. Adversaries producing adversity. The great adversary using perhaps failures or 
problems or other people to whisper his lies to you, whether it's your accuser standing before God day and night to tell God the truth about you, or whether it's the problems that you face in life. If you can think of anything else, especially anything even more severe than what he's already mentioned, Paul just wraps it up by saying, hey, if there's anything else you can think of, it can't separate you from God's love. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principality, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. What is Paul saying in all of those things? Yes, they have specific ideas, specific definitions. But what Paul is doing is he's emphasizing, I've mentioned some pretty bad things. But let's just look at anything. Anything you want to look at, anything you want to consider. Yeah, well, pastor, you haven't said that yet. Paul, you haven't talked about this yet. Okay, think of anything you can, any spiritual power, anything present right now, anything that could come, any, anything you might worry about in relation to the future. Think of anything. Can it separate you from God's love? And the answer is no. That's it. He uses the phrase here, shall be able. That word means able or possible. And he says, nothing. In other words, there is no possibility that exists of you being separated from God's love. Try to think of something and then read these verses. And the conclusion you'll come away with is no separation. There is nothing that can separate me from God's love in Christ. In relationships... We tend to fear that the other person will stop loving us. Something may happen between us. The other person may choose another path. They may discover something about us and choose to stop loving us. In some sense, we all feel unlovely and unlovable. And if we were completely honest and transparent about our lives, we would all admit that that is true in different ways. And often we carry that same tendency into our relationship with God. God looks on me and he sees nothing about me that would cause him to love me. God has no desire. How, how could he to have a relationship with me? Just as we have those fears in our human relationships, we have them in our relationship with God and maybe even to a greater extent because we know the truth that God sees all, he knows all. It's time to stop. Accept and cling to God's truth. And what is his truth about that in relationship to you? 
Nothing can separate you from his love. Aren't you glad for that tonight? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?